I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we take your favorite book, dunk it in water, and then watch all the words merge together, and then we re-parse them out in our own words. I have one. Okay. It's the podcast where genetically we are not a part of this book, but we read it and we understood its essence and we were raised emotionally by the book. And then we show you what we think they said. Yes. And so if you want to just like read the book, you can. But if you want our analysis, come swimming with us, baby. The water is fine. And I hope you like it. We have huge news. If you're just joining us today, what a world you're about to enter into. We are about to announce New York City, we're back for you. I'm coming back for you, baby. Is there anything more beautiful than a holiday season in NYC? Not according to Ashley and also not according to me. Not according to a fucking genre of rom-com classics. Anyway, you guys, we're coming back to New York City. We are doing a Christmas spectacular. We're doing a show like we've never done before. You guys, this is going to be a once slash twice in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah, if you don't get there, you'll never get to see it again, except for the second day that we do it. But it's not going to be like the thing we're touring. This is going to be a special Christmas experience that actually will take place on Hanukkah. Yeah, but Ashley won't let us do a Hanukkah show. I think it's too niche in terms of what it is as a holiday. I think Hanukkah is made up and Christmas is an essence that like penetrates my being. We've got two Christmas girls on the show for you. And a Christmas boy, but you'll find that out later. We've got incredible guests. They're all going to be surprises. So that's the only clue you're getting. I'm so excited. Please come out. This is our big Christmas show. It will be memoir based. It will be the best of us and it will be the most giving season. It will be spectacular. I'm going to start stretching now and maybe give off one high kick. Ugh, if we could get a Rockette, we can't. But maybe one of you guys is like a retired Rockette who wants to come as a friend. Yeah, let us know. Tickets are on sale right freaking now. Run, run, run. Woo! Slay, slay, slay. E-I-G-H. I forgot to say, December 7th and 8th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. For Brooklyn girls, I'm returning to where we sleep. <laughs> like the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> Claire, if your life was a memoir this week, what would you title it? Married life? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Or not. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, are you divorced already? No, but since getting back from our honeymoon, I don't know if you guys heard, but I got married. Me and Mac have been eating dinner together every night at our kitchen table. Oh my God. Someone gave me candles and little candle stands. Leave it to friggin' Beaver. And I've been lighting the candles every night. And even though we are eating like a Popeye's chicken sandwich was one of the meals. And last night I had sweet and he had dig in, which is something I do for us. They're right next to each other. I pick us up each our separate meals. But we've been eating them together at a table with lit candles. And I'm just like, whoa, we are the most married couple of all time. This is the most married thing I've ever seen anybody do. And I really was like, what an interesting change that has happened. I'm like, What's the difference between being engaged and living together versus being married? This is it right here. We're sitting at the table. We're enjoying each other's company. Soon, I think we're going to do like a no phones rule, maybe. We'll see. It's been floated. And then you know what Mac pointed out to me actually last night? What? Historically, we would like eat dinner on the couch and watch TV, maybe. Oh, you guys just don't have a couch right now. Yeah, I forgot that we threw out our couch <laughs> and we don't have a new one yet. And that's actually why we're not sitting on the couch just because there isn't a couch. I really thought that we had this like relationship you thing. You had just like fallen into step as married. And I was like, we're a family. Quality time. You know, dinner at six, baby. Let's hear about each other's days. Who needs to watch another episode of Naked and Afraid? And it's actually just because as much as we hate each other's company normally, we actually hate sitting on the floor more. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable down there. Well, maybe you can do something to the couch so that it's like off limits at dinner time. 
Maybe rig it with electricity. <laughs> Maybe we do like a Wi-Fi shut off like they have to do with children. You know? Yeah. Anyway, it was nice while it lasted. I think we got our couch in a week or two. So we'll really get to know each other. And then I do think by like October 20th, we'll have run out of things to talk about anyway. So it's good to get the TV back in the room. <laughs> Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you are a celebrity and you were to name last week's chapter, what would it be titled? I would call it Jesus fucking Christ weather. Could you relax? Nothing is worse than rain. I hate it so much. It rained for five days in a row. I couldn't even think straight. I was so annoyed because also bug goes fucking wacky. I ordered a rug because I was in such a state of tizzy. You should have taken her to a trampoline world. I don't know that she would really like a trampoline. And you think the loss of gravity would freak her out. (laughs) Anyway, continue with the rug. Oh, I mean, I like bought a rug because I was just like sitting in my apartment, sad about the rain. Bug was sad. I was like, we've got to change something. I bought a rug. Why? I know how dangerous that can be. I've literally seen it firsthand over and over and over again. What can happen to you if you try to become a rug owner? And I did it anyway. What the fuck is wrong with me? So that's my week. It's, you know, not good. Well, do you want to tell them how the rug went? Not good. It's in my kitchen now. I have a kitchen, like a full area kitchen rug, which is insane. (laughs) The problem is Bug likes the rug and, you know, it's Bug's house first. She loves to itch her head on it. I can't believe you have a Bug's house and a mouse house. I know. Everywhere you live is infested. Disgusting. Where can I live? The moon? Do you think the aliens would like let me have space or no? You're their bug. (laughs) They would keep me as a pet and they'd be like, we've got a human in the house. She loves the rug. (laughs) As always, not to bring up old matters and rehash trauma with you, but in addition to the Christmas show, we still do have tickets available for Atlanta, Nashville, Denver, for the Bay Area show, San Francisco. And we've actually got two more West Coastian shows coming up in January that we'll announce. Maybe in two weeks. In two weeks, we'll tell you. We would love to see you. We will be doing meetups beforehand, like little warming meetups. So if you are new to the area, And you don't even want to buy a ticket to the show. You can come beforehand, hang out. We will set up icebreakers so you guys can meet each other. We finally are figuring out a good way to handle it. I'm so excited for you guys to meet each other. And then we meet you after the show. We love it. It's so much fun. Tell your friends just because somehow, again, we got a bunch of people being like, I didn't know you were in Chicago. And I was like, I don't know how to tell you. We sit here on our microphones thinking they're amplifying the message. And sometimes it's just not true. Anyway, we love you so much. We hope you guys make it out. They have been so freaking fun. Chicago was amazing. Minneapolis was amazing. St. Paul, also amazing. It was next to Minneapolis. It was like a twin of the show. And now should we dive into this week's book? Carrie Washington. I love Carrie Washington. I didn't know I loved Carrie Washington, but now I'm a stan. I'll get it up front. I have one disappointment with this book, and it's that there was no photos. Oh, I would have loved to see more photos. I do think there should be a law that like, if you're very beautiful... Put photos in there or at the very least little baby pics because there's one little baby pic of her in the back and it's so freaking cute. And I'm like, I'd love to see more of that. Yeah. I'm at an age, you know what I mean? Where little cute baby pics are a sight for sore eyes. I like hugely respect that she is very private about her family. I actually love that about her. But looking at this photo and then knowing what she looks like now and knowing what her husband looks like, I'm just like you, I am certain, have the most beautiful baby anyone's ever seen. Me and Ashley both came in here and we were like, do we love him? Yep. Okay. About her husband. He's very handsome. Listen up, memoirists. We have somebody who finally made an intro worth our freaking while. Okay. She starts this intro. She's driving down the freeway. It's 2018. She's just between a 76 gas station and a Ralph's supermarket. And do you know what else she is less than one mile away from? My former apartment. That was my Ralph's supermarket across from the 76 gas station. 
Can I tell you, I said, I can't wait to hear about this from Ashley because if there's anything Ashley loves, it's the Los Angeles supermarket. And I knew she would hone in, dial in immediately. My friend Seth used to work there. You're a big fan of Ralph's, right? I'm a big fan of Ralph's. I think it is way better than Avon's, even a Pavilion's. I will say, and I'm going to get this out up top. We both loved this book. In the writing, I have one main criticism, which is that it tends to be a bit redundant. She has a metaphor and then she explains the metaphor and then she explains the metaphor another time and then she like gives you the metaphor again. And then like two paragraphs later, she's like, so, so to sum it up, and I'm like, no, 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 you told us. Yeah, I will say the contents of this book, I loved the word for word of this book. I don't know that I need it. I do think a good editor could have gone in and chopped out about 70 pages of not even extended metaphors, but just things that were explained six or seven times in a row. It didn't make me dislike her. It came from this place that felt of just for the first time she's using her voice to describe how she feels and she needs to be heard. And I think that that is a symptom of somebody who feels they were not able to share truth as a child is now that they like overcompensate. Yeah. I mean, it feels a product of like the central theme of this book, which is a desire to be understood. You were very able to kind of like graze the page and be like, read that, read that, read that, read that new information and the new information was good. After you like cruise through three pages of her describing driving down the street, which is who could ever do a long ass transportation story? I know a waste of time for everyone in the world. Anyway, her parents sent her a text that we need to talk. And she explains that this is a huge deal because in her family, they don't talk about anything. They don't confront anything. Everything gets swept on the rug. So she knows in her heart, like what is happening. So she texts her husband and says, you know what? I'm going to go meet them at the apartment that they're staying at. I don't want to do this phone call. Like, I want to see them face to face. She drives straight there. They sit her down and they say, 43 years ago, we were having a really hard time having a child. And then we don't pick up this story again for 200 pages. Everything slowed. My body felt suddenly heavy. My eyes started to burn as a kind of haze crept across them. The sound of my own breathing almost drowned out my mother's words. But as if underwater, I strained my ears to listen finally to the truth. I was like, what was the truth, Carrie? I need to know. What did you think it was? That she was adopted. Me too. Anyway, let's dive in. So Carrie Washington was born January 31st, 1977, which makes her today 46. And this book came out one week ago from when you're hearing it. So I guess at that point, she was 46 when she wrote it. Totally. Maybe 45. Anyway, so then chapter one works as sort of a second introduction. Can I say I actually was like, okay, we're already like in the meat of the story. Don't take me four years back. Yeah, take me back to the beginning. But we go back to the set of Scandal to her final episode that she recorded. And there was a line where Olivia Pope, and for those of you who don't know, Carrie Washington plays Olivia Pope in the hit Shondaland series Scandal. Olivia Pope, they ask her what she's going to do next. And she says, whatever I want. It became almost a mantra or a spell, an intoxicating incantation and when she ends shooting Scandal, she realizes she finally has the time to figure out who she is. She realizes Olivia Pope knows exactly who she is, that she is ready to just go into the next stage of her life as her authentic self. And she goes, but Carrie isn't. Who am I next? And it opens up a journey of exploration. So then, and I will say, I found this syntactically odd. Just like we're back at her mother's childhood. Yeah. This should have been a chapter break or a page break or something. Some break. So her parents began to date in the late 60s. And I have to say, it is everybody's dream story. So her mother, Valerie Patricia Moss, had a best friend named Claudelle Washington. They were best friends in high school. They grew up, stayed close. Her mom actually went on to get married to another man, get divorced a couple years later. It was not a good marriage. He had some mental illness that was going undiagnosed and unchecked. And so she got out of that marriage. She went to a party where she met Claudelle's little brother who had been a track star and very charismatic. 
They went to the beach the next day. They hit it off right away. They got married. So damn, is that not the dream to marry your best friend's little brother? Wasn't that everyone's high school plan? That was everyone's high school plan. Her dad, at first in description, sounds awesome. My dad had attended three Olympic games in his lifetime. The games combined two things he loves most, sports and international culture. I love an Olympic games. She really pitches them as this beautiful, stellar, incredible couple. Their first time hanging out was at Reese Beach in the Rockaways, and she jumped right into the ocean, and her father fell in love with how beautiful she was and how fearless and how brave, and they both have this love of water, which is a big hallmark of the Washington family. They all love to swim. They're little fishes. Her mom is very strong and independent. She's an educator. She's actually a professor. She has her doctorate in early education. And her childhood sounded so nice. She would like go to her mom's classes. And because her mom was teaching early childhood education, she would sometimes defer to Carrie in the back row to be like, how would a seven-year-old process this? Yeah. What do you think, Carrie, the seven-year-old? Yeah. A lot of it sounded really beautiful. She loved her dad. She says her mom taught her discipline and the importance of education. Her mom was also really into immersive education. They were in New York City. They were in the Bronx. So if you were interested in history, the big museums are right here. But it's also if you were interested in whale watching, they were going out to the beach to go whale watching. They were going to get the cheap half price Broadway tickets all the time just to see whatever they could see. She was really taking Carrie and giving her every experience that New York had to offer and trying to engage her to the fully. She had always really wanted a child and she like was very protective and loving of Carrie. So a lot of her story, a lot of the central thing with this book is that she's struggling to figure out who she is because she feels there's a disconnect. But the thing she knows for sure is that during her mom's first marriage, my mother had been devastated by the birth of a stillborn child. Her marriage had not been a happy one. Her former husband had suffered from undiagnosed mental illness, featuring grandiose visions and compulsive lying. The end of their marriage came after he fired a gun toward my mother's head and claimed that he had purposefully missed. Then her parents had really struggled to conceive, so she knows she was wanted. From the start, I knew that I was wanted and I knew that I was loved. Even as a small child, I was told that it had taken my parents a long time to have me. And my mother's devotion to me was undeniable, her dedication palpable, her sacrifices endless. When it came to the development of my mind, she gave me the world. She credits the way her parents raised her with her desire to become an actor. I probably chose the job I did because of who my dad is. He taught me anything was possible. In fact, I reached for the impossible because I knew how he sees the world. But how I do what I do, the work ethic and the technique and the professionalism and the drive, that's from my mother. My mother's drive to educate me mixed with my dad's endless imagination encoded within me the artist I would become. As she paints this childhood, she often comes back to this thought, something was missing, something felt wrong. And as many children do, I thought that something was me. She also talks about a weird experiences she had with her father's family growing up. When I was eight years old, I asked my mother why my LT nanny, who was her dad's mom, didn't like me. My mother avoided eye contact, deflecting the question, asking me, what makes you think that? I was beginning to recognize avoidance and denial once again. I knew that I'd asked the wrong thing. And then she goes on to be like, this grandmother would always say, like, where do you really come from? Who is she? Like, where does her mother really come from? I think LT saw me entirely as my mother's child. So maybe what I sensed was my grandmother's discomfort with me as if something about the story of our family was not quite right. So she kind of shows you all the fun and beauty and how great her parents were and how much they loved her. But then she starts letting you in on the cracks. She says, professionally, my dad had a tough time. He worked in financial services, owned a general store and eventually became a real estate agent. He has always had vivid dreams of success and grandeur mixed with the too trusting heart of an intrepid entrepreneur. This has meant that over and over, he has taken on exciting ventures in the hopes that they will lead to a life of wealth and ease. But more often than not, he's been disappointed. And so there is this odd kind of rift where it's Carrie and her mom acknowledging the disappointment that is her dad. At one point, she talked to her mom and said, why don't you just leave him? And she said, because I can't. If I kick him out, he'll have nothing. 
Her eyes were filled with regret and remorse. She seemed trapped in a prison of her own compassion and guilt and saddened to admit it all. As miserable as she may have been at different points in their marriage, my mother was unable to inflict the kind of pain on my dad that she said he had placed on her in our home. She may not have much in the way of resources, but still she felt that he had less. She also talks about going to therapy for the first time in college and all she could talk about was her dad. I didn't understand him and he didn't understand or fully approve of me. Even as a young child, I felt that I was never who my dad needed me to be. So after painting this picture of both of them, she starts to be like, okay, but here was what was really going on. And it quickly becomes apparent that her mother, I think, was really the dominant force in wanting to lead this picture-perfect life. She was obviously very ambitious and impressive. She had her doctorate. They had seemingly a lot. They lived in this home that was technically subsidized housing, but wasn't considered the projects. It was a bit nicer. It had a pool that was very important to the family. They had an upstate lake house that she doesn't really talk about that much, but I'm like, that's kind of impressive. And they had two cars. She said like they were the family in the complex that always had a microwave first, always had a dishwasher first. They always looked nice. They stayed together. They were married to this day. So they were a family that presented as like having it all. Yes. But underneath the surface, there were problems that the way they dealt with it was just by pretending that there weren't. Yeah. And so then we get into this through line of water. She always felt very free and very herself in water. Their family was very big on swimming. And whenever problems arose, whenever she felt this disconnect, these arguments, these problems, not feeling enough, not feeling herself, she always felt like she could come back to who she was in water. Mm -hmm. I have to say, this chapter goes on and on and on. And I think it was important to her to like give an homage to this thing that was so good and important about their family in a book that is mostly about the problems of their family. But it was like, we had a pool. And the way you would get in is you needed an ID. And if you wanted a guest pass, the guest pass was a different color. And then if you wanted a snack, you had to eat the snack outside. There was a deep end. And then, you know, adults. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been to a pool. <laughs> okay, this didn't need to be 25 pages. And so then she gets into like what she was running from when she was in water. Her parents fought constantly and thought that she didn't know. She says there was this act. They would always wait to fight until after she was in bed. And she's like, but I knew. And so she pretty early on, I think at seven years old, starts getting panic attacks when she would go to sleep. And she wouldn't be able to sleep because she knew that when she was asleep, her parents had the green light to start fighting. And she hated that. My mom and dad were the original magician and his assistant. I was the audience member who had been invited onto the stage to be cut in half. So she's like, they had this big secret. I was like aware that something was going on, but I was never let into the story. We would do almost anything to protect the illusion of our perfection. She also talks about being an only child. I hungered for the ability to be anywhere other than the apartment alone, an only child and a latchkey kid. And the truth was, even when there were people around, for example, if my cousins were with me after school or when my parents came home from work on the evenings, no matter who else was there, I still felt deeply alone. It was a sinking feeling and I wanted to soar. So I eventually found a way to escape, even if only in my mind. And this is like the beginning of her love of acting, which came very early. So she talks more about her parents' conflict. They both harbored disappointment over what their lives had become. My mother was disappointed in my dad and my dad was disappointed in the marriage. They argued about my dad's spending versus my mother's thriftiness, my dad's failures to earn versus my mother's failure of ambition, my dad's regular absences versus my mother's obsession with me. My dad's drinking played a powerful role in our family dynamics, though it was not a problem as far as he was concerned. Most nights when my dad came home, I hid in my room pretending to be asleep. I knew by heart the song of his sloppy shuffle across the wood paneled floor. I would watch my mother's transformation as she steeled herself for his homecoming. My mother treated my dad with the gentle detachment of an emergency room nurse. She approached the patient carefully, unable to immediately gauge the level of danger he posed, but nonetheless determined to somehow provide adequate, if not loving, care. So there was a lot of just acting, a lot of pretending. 
a lot of just not saying what is under the surface constantly. And this is just a theme throughout her entire life. So she's having panic attacks at night. Her parents fight constantly. She knows they're both in the wrong. Like she says, they both have said things to each other that would be difficult to forgive. We'd all heard them. The next morning, as was always the case, it was as if nothing had happened. There was no discussion of the painful words that had been exchanged the night before, no reference to them at all, in fact. My mother smiled warmly at me as she prepared breakfast, and my dad slept through the early morning hours as he usually did. Looking back, I think my mother was trapped in the funhouse version of her dream. I personally became more private and withdrawn. I resolved to stay in my room at night with the dreaded internal pulse of the rhythm terrorized me to sleep. My parents' battles were minor in comparison to the ones that raged within me. One battle that she's constantly fighting within herself in her life is that she follows the patterns that her parents set for her. She says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to not talk about it. Then we'll not talk about it. And then she kind of resents herself for following those patterns, for contributing to the lifestyle that she resents. She also starts to believe that it is her responsibility to keep them together. She feels like she is the only thing they have in common. And so she has to be good enough to make them happy. I tucked away the fear and started to develop a role, a character that would stay with me, the good girl, the perfect child, the solution. After all, I was their dream come true. If their personal failures had made it impossible for them to love themselves and each other, then I would be perfect enough so that they could experience whatever love they needed through me. Then she gets into a trauma of her childhood, trigger warning for sexual assault. She talks about why she's choosing to come forward, because I think for a lot of women and a lot of people who have experienced sexual assault, the decision to even say anything is such a weighted, guilty one, because often people want to protect the abuser. And to say that my life is just as important as theirs is such a hard thing to overcome. By choosing not to tell this story to the adults in my life when I was a child and publicly until now, his youth and innocence have been prioritized. His emotional vulnerabilities have been protected over my own. Before I go any further, let me say this. I do not blame the perpetrator of this betrayal. This is not to say I do not grapple with the effects of the betrayal itself, but like me, he was also a scared child struggling to make sense of the world around him. He was not an adult predator taking advantage of a younger, more vulnerable girl. He was not a pedophile. The truth remains that things were done to me while I was sleeping and without my consent, but the perpetrator was a child himself. It is partly my compassion for him that has kept these incidents a secret, locked in the vault of my mind. So she talks about going to sleepovers as a kid. She had a ton of cousins and they would have like big group sleepovers when all the adults would hang out in the room and watch TV and hang out together. And she says a few times she started having like signals that things were going weird. She would wake up and her nightgown would be all the way up to her collarbones. And she's like, I know I was a rough sleeper, but I don't know. I was always waking up disheveled in this way that did not make sense to me that signified something was wrong. And then one day she wakes up and she sees a guy turn over on his back really quick in a way that you would do as a little child pretending that you're asleep. And she catches it out of the corner of her eye and she calls to him and she keeps saying his name enough that he should turn around and respond, but he's not. And she's like, I knew he was pretending to be asleep because I woke up the people around me trying to get his attention and for him to pretend to sleep through it. It made me suspicious of him. One night she stirs and she realizes the lights are on and quickly they shut off and the door closes. And she sees that same boy, his back running out the door. And again, her clothes are pulled up and pulled down and she's not sure what's happening to her, but she's like, I could hear people laughing. I knew that like something had been happening to me when I was asleep and she felt uncomfortable. She asks him about it and he denies it. So she develops a plan to catch him where she'll pretend to be asleep. She does end up catching him. But she says almost worse than what he was doing was the denial. Yeah. And she quotes somebody that she was on a set with one time who was going through a divorce and his therapist has said, 
the cruelest thing you can do to a person is when they have suspicions of you that you know to be true, deny them because it like detaches you from your reality. Yeah. It's like taking this person's sense of being able to trust themselves and their instincts and like making them feel awash in their own body. It's the actual consequences of gaslighting and not like in the loosey goosey way. Yeah. No, that's like actually like taking somebody and saying like, you can't trust yourself. You are not even your own ally. You are crazy. Yeah. And she said, when he denied it three times, you're crazy. You made that up in your head. I don't know what you're talking about. Something inside me shattered. I felt like the spirit within me, my self-esteem and sense of self were under attack. But still, there was a strong, confident, free version of me within my 10-year-old body. His denial, it seemed, was attempting to slaughter her soul. And she was determined not to go down without a fight. So she catches him. She calls to the adults and he's freaking out and she is overcome with just a million different emotions. She's angry. She's angry at this boy. She's angry at her parents and the adults for not protecting her. And she's torn in this moment of what to do. And she ends up not telling them. He made me suffer. Yes. But was I now justified in inflicting suffering upon him? And would I even be believed? I had seen his denial. He was convincing. He almost convinced me. I decided that he would not survive me telling, and that of the two of us, I was probably the one best equipped to hold this trauma and live with the truth of it. Yes, he was the perpetrator, but I felt that he was not built to withstand the pain of facing the consequences of his actions. One of the consequences of growing up in a household with half-truths is that there is no space for trust to thrive. My parents did not trust me with their painful truths, and I, in turn, learned not to trust them with mine. She says as she grew up, she just felt more and more distant from her parents. And distant from herself. And that's one of the things that she found solace in with acting is that she was able to become these characters, embody these characters, learn who they are and like what makes them tick. And she was able to sort of not learn those things about herself. I couldn't feel my feelings at home. I couldn't share them with anybody. So I sat on a journey to find places where my feelings would be accepted and my secrets could be told even in code. I was willing to be whoever I needed to be, but I knew that I had to be someone other than myself. And this is how acting began to save my life. So she becomes an actor actually very young. She was, I think, in seventh grade at Spence. Which is a very bougie school on the Upper East Side. It's where Gwyneth Paltrow went. Yeah, they overlapped a smidge. And so she goes to Spence on a few grants. It's still, you know, tough for her parents to afford it. But she's very aware of the privileges she was awarded just by being associated with Spence. But it's also the first time she starts to feel incredibly othered. It's the first time she's aware of the privileges that other people are getting and like just the distance between her and her classmates. And it's very isolating for her. So she starts acting and very quickly, one of the teachers, Holly Shank, is pretty aware of her skill and is like, I know this casting director and she's looking for someone pretty much like you. She's looking for a young girl to be an interview with a vampire. And she auditions for it. And this casting director ends up not choosing her. She is obviously not an interview with a vampire. But the casting director is like, you're very good, though. You're just too young. And she's like, oh, I just got fully rejected. And it's like, no, they really did like you because this casting director sets her up with meetings at all the top agencies. And she's like, I'll call them before you get there so that they know that you're coming and like, let them know I think you're a good gal. And then her cousin, who's at UPenn at the time, she's a very like smart family on both sides. Everybody's very successful. Sits her down and gives her this piece of advice. He says, always remember that you are interviewing them as much as they are interviewing you. Say, what distinguishes your school from some other institution I'm visiting? Why should I choose this school over some of the other great independent schools? So she goes there and is like, well, why should I pick you as an agent? And they're like, uh, and then they're like, are you available for a casting next week? And she has a school planner. She goes, well, let me check my schedule. <laughs> and they're like, okay, you like beacon of maturity. <laughs> And she ends up just going with the first agency she meets with, even though she has four other meetings. But she's like, no, I thought they were great. 
The agent that she met as a child at this agency still works with her today. Yeah, not as an agent, but like as still a manager. on her team. Yeah. So she meets with this agent. She loves them. She signs with them. And her mom initially is like, always remember, this is your thing. You have to handle this. Schedule your auditions. You can't miss school. You can't fall behind in school, but do it. And it very quickly becomes pressure filled. At first, I was like, hell yeah, mom. But then Carrie picks up on the sense that whenever bills hit the family, her mom will say things like, how come you haven't booked in a while? And it was understood that this was seen as a way for her to alleviate some of the financial strain that she felt personally responsible for because of the cost of her tuition. We'll later find out that actually, I think the cost of her tuition was the least of their worries. Yeah. The seduction of monetary reward had put blood in the water that my mother couldn't resist sniffing out. And the more my mother interrogated me with a veneer of concern about why I wasn't booking work, the more frightened I became. But she also says the whole thing is making her a worse actress because where she had used to love it and she was the star of the plays and she was in this thing called Tada, which was a very serious children's acting program. The process of being scrutinized and evaluated and then often dismissed, sometimes instantaneously, as in commercial auditions, was profoundly intimidating. Every time I had a go-see, I would rush after school to change out of my Upper East Side all-girls school uniform into whatever outfit I thought might get me the job as America's most likable new teenager. Initially, acting was the place where I felt safe, but now, in pursuit of professional success, my love for acting was becoming tainted. And she also just has a little call-out to say, like, in my neighborhood, no one else was really doing this. The only other famous person anyone knew was Jennifer Lopez who actually grew up a couple blocks away from her. And she was like, what we were doing was so different, though, because everyone looked at Jennifer Lopez and was like, well, that's a fucking star. <laughs> she starts to really internalize the failures and think like, why can't I be more perfect? I started to resent my parents for the pressure I felt to book. And I started to hate auditions exactly when I needed to work the most. So she does get into this group called Star Serving Teens Through Art Resources, which is a group that was formed a few years into the AIDS epidemic where teens would make up plays based on health and public issues and like do plays for other teens about them. And she loved it. She's like, oh, I want to be an advocate and an activist. I don't actually care about acting that much. And like as she's becoming much more distant with acting and hating the auditioning process, Star is a real group that keeps her in the game and like keeps her engaged. So the way it works is they like pretend to be these other people who are struggling with teen pregnancy or getting an STD or something. They go and perform these little vignettes for schools. And at the end of each performance, the students are allowed to ask the performers questions about themselves, what they're going to do next, talk through it like it's a real situation. And she said having to know her character this well was such an exciting opportunity for her. And then also she got to see the importance and power of art and the way it can actually impact students. She's like, we were doing good work to help these people learn about sexual health and drug abuse in a way that nothing else felt as effective. And she's like, it really started making me realize how much art and allyship can be tied together. She loved it. Even though I didn't yet fully know how to control it, I knew that when I could plug into a character and give myself over to the reality of the performance, what happened felt like sorcery and was perceived as magic. She's also a regular teen. She starts lying to her parents more and more and just really kind of enjoying it. She was doing her auditioning. She was going to school. She was doing star, but she was also partying. She lived in New York City. Yeah, she was clubbing. She had a fake ID. Teenagers in New York City are cooler than the rest of us. My culture of secrecy resulted in two dueling frameworks that shaped my sense of self and my relationship to the world. The first one was self-reliance, in which I believed that I was on my own. I felt that it was impossible to be fully honest and fully myself with anyone. The second framework was the belief that I didn't have the emotional maturity to understand the complexity of my own truth. I knew there were things that they weren't telling me, things that I thought I couldn't handle. 
So one of the things her parents aren't telling her is that her dad has had a almost decade long battle with the IRS and could go to jail. And they have this lawyer that she had never heard of. And then suddenly his name starts coming up and she's asked to write a letter on her father's behalf to the judge. And suddenly she's meeting this lawyer who knows all about her. And it really just creates this sense of betrayal where she's like, how has there been this huge part of their life that I've just never even heard of this guy? And he knows all about me. Everyone is existing in my life kind of without even telling me. Also that now she kind of understands the source of their problems. I think maybe if she had understood, I get that it's a lot to tell a seven-year-old, but maybe if you said, listen, we have this problem and it's putting friction between us, she would understand that it wasn't her responsibility. Yeah. She also kind of drops this bomb. She talks about the secret she's keeping from her parents and how she's getting more and more distant from her mother, who she used to be so close to. And in my adolescent years, I had an ongoing romantic relationship with a girl. My mother asked casually, what's going on with you two? But I called her bluff. Do you really want to know? I said. No, she said. The conversation was now in my hands. We're close, I said, trying to make light of the whole thing. Okay, she said, seemingly relieved to be spared the details. So she goes to GWU, George Washington University, to study acting. And it's there that she reignites her love for acting. She is finally given the time to enjoy performance, to enjoy the study of acting that she just hadn't been afforded before because there was so much pressure on the situation. She like lost the fun of acting so quickly because she kind of turned pro early. And because of the scholarship she has, she's required to audition for every single play. Even if she's too busy to do them, she has to audition for everything. And so because a lot of these auditions are very low pressure because she can't even do the play, she's just auditioning for everything. She learns to love auditioning as well. And she learns to discover that it's a collaborative process, that there's a lot of fun to be had in auditioning, and that they're not deciding like, are you good or are you bad? They're deciding out of all of the people that are auditioning, do you happen to be the person who's right? And it takes a lot of the pressure off the situation. And she's able to really find love for acting and developing characters. Yeah. And she does like movement classes and starts to feel presence in her body for the first time. She says the first time she ever did yoga, she started crying at the end because she had never really felt comfortable in her own skin. And it was the first time she had really thought about moving her body thoughtfully. Her work study job in college is working in the costume department. She gets to just like love the craft of the theater. She also, throughout the book, talks a bit about having disordered eating throughout her life and struggling with body image. It's never fully delved into. She says she went through bouts of over-exercising, under-eating, purging, binging, etc. She mentions it throughout the entire book as just a constant throughout her life that she's learning to control and understand and grow. I think it's kind of nice that it's just there. Because I think that that is like very true to a lot of women's experiences. Mm -hmm. And that every time she tries to reach out for help about it, people go, what are you talking about? Everybody eats. It's good to exercise. Nobody takes seriously her literal, I don't even call them cries for help, her literal asks for help. Nobody takes them seriously. And she says there were times where it would be so bad it can completely control her life and she fell imprisoned to it. I don't want to mention it every time it comes up, but coming in and out of characters throughout really just almost every point in her life, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. And I really admire that she doesn't give us like one strong chapter on it and then say, anyway, since then I'm better. I mean, I hate to compare all of our memoirs, but we do it all the time. And I think a lot of them will just sit here and be like, and then I got better. And it's like, okay, good for you then. (laughs) At college, she learns how to really use her toolbox and method act and like acting for the love of acting. But none of the roles I played in my everyday life were rooted in my truest self. The pathway to knowing my truth clearly had been broken before the bones of me were fully set. So I searched for that version of me and wondered who she was. So college ends 
And she decides that before she moves back into her parents' house, she wants to see the world. And she chooses a program in India. I chose India for a few reasons. I wanted to study performance in a place where theater was sacred. I wanted to be able to step on stage and participate in a theater tradition filled with history and divinity so that perhaps I could endure the hustle that was to come and focus on the thing I loved most about acting. Because she had decided she wanted to be like a worker's worker. She did not want to be famous. She really respects people with hustle. And so she's like, I want to be not just a working actor, but somebody who like works fucking hard. Yeah, she has no desire to be famous. And I really admire that she has kind of stuck by that, even as she's done massive projects and cultivated a life that like she very easily could just be a famous person. She's still an actor who is a household name. Something really incredible about this book, too, is it's very personal and open. And of course, she's talking about her parents, but her story is so inextricably tied to her parents' story that like you can't spare them and still be honest. But she never names a boyfriend. She barely names a friend. I mean, she does like a name here and there. She'll be like, oh, my friend Ashley was in town, blah, blah, blah. But she does not give anybody else's dirt. Yeah. I mean, she's like, I have to tell you that I like started dating a guy and eventually married him because that information is public and I have two children. And I think the story of her children is important to her. But like, you do not get shit. Ashley came in and goes, oh, her husband's so nice. And I was like, how do you know that? (laughs) Yeah, I don't even think she says that. (laughs) I watched some interviews with him on the way in and I was like, oh, my God, he seems lovely. (laughs) She says he's a great presence and I believe it. I've said it once and I will say it a million times. Summer does not end until the end of October. So it is still gorgeous outside, still plenty of time to enjoy the sun. Unfortunately, summer does do a number on skin. The sun exposure, the air conditioning, it'll dry you out from every direction. And that is why I love the Osea Andaria Exfoliate and Glow Duo. The Andaria Cleansing Body Polish provides an easy one-step exfoliating, cleansing, and moisturizing shower essential. It has a unique gel-to-milk texture that feels so, so nice when you rub it on your skin. I have been forever on the hunt for the perfect shower gel. It's so hard to find something that like feels nice on your skin, smells nice, has all the effects that you are looking for, and then you've got the Andaria Algae Body Oil. It seals in hydration after your shower moisturizes, and it makes you glow all day. It is rich, but not greasy, which again, I've been searching for this product for my entire life. I've always wanted to be a moisturized girl, but I just can't handle the residue of like an intense lotion. When you get the Osea Andaria Exfoliate and Glow Duo, you save. It's the perfect way to save on two of Osea's best-selling products, It's an incredible value. You save 16% when you get the Andaria Exfoliate and Glow Duo. Plus, with our promo code, you'll get an additional 10% off. And you get free samples with every single order and free shipping on orders over $60. Osea has been making seaweed-infused products that are safe for your skin and the planet for over 27 years. Everything they make is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Prep your skin for fall with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Right now, we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with the code WORM at OseaMalibu.com. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use the code WORM for 10% off. So she goes to India and in order to study this performance there called the theatrical tradition of Kathakali, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but I will say I never heard of this before. Me either. Where actors paint their faces in enormous, often green mask-like countenances 
and move across the stage in highly stylized movements with almost operatic emotions. So she wants to study this form of acting, but in order to do that, you have to first study both yoga and kalaripayattu, a martial art that is thought to sit at the root of all other performance tradition in South India. So she loves yoga. She's so grateful to be deepening her practice. The stage fighting, she's like less loving. Yeah. So she's basically doing martial arts training in the morning. She gets to eat lunch and then she does yoga training in the afternoon. She's staying with a couple other students from GW and a translator. And she's just becoming immersed in the language there and the religion. She really felt very close to God here. She loved that there was so much religion around her. And she just kind of gets close to herself. It's the first time in her life she's just alone. And then by the end of the trip, they're like, you thought you could get on stage? Are you kidding? You have to study for like 10 years before you're allowed to paint your face green. And she's like, fair enough. At least I get to watch. Show me a bitch who goes abroad and doesn't come back and write a chapter about it in her book. (laughs) So she comes back and she's searching for agents. And this woman, Kathy Atkinson, who she met at her very first agency that she got in ninth grade, has switched to a management company, but kept Carrie with her. And is like, let's get you an agent. And Carrie has so much insecurity. She's like, I'm worried that I'm not good enough. And I'm worried I'm going to let everybody down. And now I'm worried about letting Kathy down. And I can relate to that. There's like one thing where, I don't know, it's stressful when you feel like you have to prove to other people. Yeah. But she does finally feel ready and excited to pursue professional acting, even though she's technically been doing it for years at this point. She must have been getting little bits here and there. She never talks about the things she got as a kid. But I am like, oh, it does seem like every once in a while you would book the commercial. You would book the TV show. Totally. So you were making a bit of money and there was a bit of promise. They didn't just hold on to somebody for five years because they thought maybe eventually she'd be Olivia Pope. Right. But she obviously wasn't like a child star. She was no Stephanie Tanner. In the early years of an actor's career, most of your time is spent trying to obtain work. The job, therefore, is mostly to audition, and the reward is when you actually book a gig. The reality, however, is that more often than not, the role goes to someone else. At its root, auditioning is about solving someone's problem. Writers, directors, and producers want to tell a story, and they need people to embody it and bring it to life. You can either be the exact right person for the role, or if you're not, your audition might offer clarity about who or what it is they're looking for. So she says in order to not get absolutely emotionally destroyed by the fruitlessness of auditions, she had to refocus her definition of success on process rather than results. Had I tried my best? Had I given it my all? If I could honestly answer yes to both of those questions and it still did not go my way, then I had to have faith in the belief that I was collecting these no's on the pursuit of yeses. And if the yeses never came, then I would know when it was time to move on. I gave myself a year. I love it when people are like, I was ready to duke it out for as long as it would take until there was a clear answer. If in six weeks I was not the star of a film, I would know it was not my destiny. Luckily, on my first audition. Yeah. So the summer of 1999, she is in her first movie. It's an indie film called Our Song that shot on location in Brooklyn. Mostly a gorilla shoot, it seems. So she was 22. And she had gone to college. So she was doing okay. She says, I will never be as good again. Never, ever, ever as I was in that first movie. She loved the experience. She found it extremely collaborative and fulfilling. They shot on a budget of 100K and they stole several shots on the A train and in Far Rockaway at the edge of Queens. She says she would look up and see an airplane just like she did when she was a little kid. But now I had found my escape, not on a plane. I had escaped into this character, into this movie and into the magic of filmmaking, a process that necessitates the embodiment of an alternative reality. Sitting on the A-train as Lanisha Brown, I was exactly where I wanted to be. The morning our song hit theaters, I was walking across Central Park to a group recovery meeting on the Upper West Side. Her phone is just full of messages. The reviews are out of this world. The newspaper calls her a miracle. Our song was a critical success and an indie film favorite. It premiered at Sundance, where it was nominated for a grand jury prize. 
and went on to receive an Indie Spirit Award nomination for Best Feature. So a huge theme is that, again, she loves working. She loves being a working actor. And so she's always missing the glamorous parts, the award shows, because she's doing other shit. And it's so important to her to like be working, be a part of the process. After the movie comes out, she's like, yeah, it's cool that it wins awards. <laughs> so what was she working on? Save the Last Dance. Oh, God, I love that movie so much. <laughs> she had to audition a lot for Save the Last Dance. It finally came down to her and one other actor for the role of Chenille. The other actor was a high-profile pop star, and I was an unknown who was still filming my first movie. Who do we think that was? I have to know. She gets a fucking horrible offer. She's a supporting role, and they give her a deal that her agent and manager are like, you honestly shouldn't even take this movie. And she takes it because she's passionate about the project. She just really, like, believed in it, so she does a lot of research. She goes and hangs out with teen moms to understand what they're talking about. So they go out into the nightlife. They bond with their friends. I mean, it sounds like everyone on this set got along so well. Julia Stiles, Sean Patrick Thomas, Fredro Starr. We all rewrote a lot of the dialogue and we searched for our own authentic rhythms. The result was a film that was and still is beloved by audiences. It broke records for February box office numbers, even in the midst of a blizzard. The back-to-back releases of Our Song and Save the Last Dance were a crazy one-two punch. But despite having two highly successful projects, one an art house independent film and the other a studio commercial hit. I was still working at a restaurant, substitute teaching in New York City public schools and teaching yoga. I don't understand how that could be true. And she said she couldn't even teach the older kids anymore because the principal was like, it's too distracting for them to have a celebrity here. I mean, I don't think she made that much money. I think that this was shot over the course of two years, right? So like one summer was one movie. Then as that was coming out, she was shooting the next movie. So I think that this was like two to three full years of time. I guess, but the days before Instagram, say what you want about social media. If there had been Instagram back then, she would have been able to like turn around at least a fucking lipstick commercial. Right. But I mean, think about if the budget for the first movie was 100K. Yeah, she probably made $2,000. Right. And so then for Save the Last Dance, the horrible deal for a big studio movie was probably, I bet you she made like 70K or something like that. Yeah, and some of those things then like your manager takes some, your agent takes some. Two big roles. She probably made like what you would want to make for like a very modest year over the course of like two to three years. So she's working a lot of jobs. She says she specifically maintained these other gigs because she never wanted to have to take a role that she didn't believe in. Mm -hmm. It was very important to her to never do a project for money. Then she was in a movie called Lift. My first time playing the lead in a film, being number one on the call sheet. Came the same year Save the Last Dance was released. So it seems like she's doing kind of like one a year. Yeah. The role was about a girl who's addicted to petty theft, but also has a complicated relationship with her mother. And she says like through all of these roles, she's learning more about herself. I feel like she uses roles the way people use astrology or something. Like she enters these characters, she learns to understand them, and she takes with her the parts that resonated with who she feels she is authentically. And she's slowly putting the pieces together. The film was eventually bought by Showtime in 2001 and I was nominated for an Independence Bear Award. Then in 2003, she did a Spike Lee movie called She Hate Me. She really loved this project and she's slowly becoming very recognizable, especially within the black community. She acts like she's not, but she is. Yeah. She's like, I was just a character actor that nobody would know. If you couldn't teach at a school because too many kids were coming to like ogle you, you were kind of famous. And in the midst of this gray area where she could pretend that she was just a character actor, but other people would recognize her on the street, she needed to go get an abortion. So she goes to the clinic and she puts in a fake name, fake address, fake email, but her real phone number, should there be an emergency? And she says while she's going under and having the procedure done, the nurse looks up at her and goes, you know who you look like? 
that actress, Carrie Washington, and she's like, wow, maybe people do know me. Yeah. She really beats herself up about this abortion. She's like, I can't believe I was like a teenage sex educator and I let myself get pregnant by accident. She doesn't beat herself up about needing the abortion. It's more that she she doesn't say it specifically, but it seems like she did not insist on the man wearing a condom because she did not feel comfortable speaking up for herself. And she's like, I can't believe that like I'm stuck in this position because I wanted to people please. Yeah. I think that this was like a really well-written section about abortions. I think we've read a lot of them. And I think it's really interesting the way everyone has like a different perspective. Yeah, I would say in this section, the things that come through are not like that the abortion was some huge cataclysmic change in her life. It's one that it was the first time she really recognized the loss of her privacy. She was like, oh, my God, here I am in this like intimate medical setting and people recognize me. I was right to have to lie about who I am. And then second of all, recognizing that she's in this situation in the first place because she feels unable to stand up for herself, which feels so at odds with her ambition and her ability and her success. Yes. Then she moves to sunny Los Angeles. So she finally is like, all right, things are on the up and up. I think I'm becoming quite successful. And in order to become more successful, I should probably move to L.A. In L.A., she finally is like, maybe I don't need four side jobs. Maybe I should just like really dig my heels in on acting. She gets right away this movie called Against the Ropes, which she takes because it stars Meg Ryan and Omar Epps. And she goes, listen, when Harry Met Sally is to this day one of my top three favorite movies of all time. So I was willing to play Meg Ryan's like black best friend, but I'm done. She's like, after doing it for Meg Ryan, it would be a lateral move for anybody else. I refuse to take a role where I'm relegated to sidekick. I decided to take the leap and pursue roles as leading lady. It's not that I wanted to be the star of a film. I wanted my characters to be in a story of their own. I didn't want to be an accessory to a white woman's journey. I wanted to play women with agency who were living through pivotal moments of their own. This began an exciting period of my career in which I played opposite several Hollywood's most esteemed black actors and comedians from Chris Rock to Don Cheadle to Eddie Murphy to Samuel L. Jackson to the Wayans Brothers. She also has a run of playing the wife of Oscar-winning performances. I don't know why she didn't get any Oscars, but very cool. I wonder when she will. Yeah. Yeah, so her first big one was Ray, where she plays Jamie Foxx's wife. Not really. She plays Ray Charles's wife, but he's played by Jamie Foxx. I was always sure to credit Jamie for setting the best possible example. Both on screen and off, Jamie is invested in bringing out the best in everyone around him. His generosity, it seems, has no limits. She says, when people praise me as a leader on set, everything I know, I learned from Jamie. Which, okay, I know we say don't think anybody's good, but I haven't heard anything bad about Jamie. Didn't he take Katie Holmes? Yeah, secretly. I mean, not secretly, but they were just like subtle about it Like high key, low key. I kind of feel like Jamie Foxx might be a good guy. Uh, uh, I don't want to say it. I don't want to jinx it, but... I know. I think Garcelle Beauvais loved him. Who wouldn't love him? I love him. Oh, my God. He did this thing one time where he showed how similar Jay-Z and Kermit the Frog's voices are. I'm like, you are the most talented man in the world. Something about those two impressions, I went, wow, you have it. (laughs) (laughs) He also just, like, seemed very encouraging and incredible as a co-star. He would help her like as she was losing a character. It just seems like he would say the right thing to really bring her back into the moment. With Jamie's help, I remember that acting was about discovery, about messy, flawed humanity, and about being open to something new each and every time, not about being perfect or doing the same thing 20 times in a row. So they finish up Ray. This is the first time she's privy to like the true Oscar campaign. Yeah. I actually knew all about it because I watched BoJack Horseman. So I know that it is like a real popularity horse race bullshit. I know about it because I read Anna Kendrick's memoir. Oh, yeah. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) 
it made her cynical. Knowing that there was a culture of campaigning for these awards allowed me to peek behind the curtain that fractured any concept of best in the creative arts. Campaigns were built to increase popularity and win votes. I would argue that one doesn't win these kinds of awards without tremendous talent and the work to show for it. But it was also now clear to me why some of the greatest performances of our time have not been awarded trophies. The award doesn't always go to the best performances. It goes to one of the year's most extraordinary performances backed up by an effective campaign. Get them. So she is on this insane, like, I mean, it is just exhausting. Like, you got to go to openings. You got to do panels. You got to do interviews. You're everywhere. Kiss babies. Sign biceps. In the meantime, she finds out that her mother has been diagnosed with cancer. And it was withheld from her because her parents thought that she was too busy. And she tells them, you know, that's okay. I understand why you didn't tell me. But she says, now it was my turn to withhold truths. I told them it was fine that she hadn't told me, but it wasn't. Inside, I felt further adrift. And then we get into The Last King of Scotland. Where she plays Idi Amin's wife. I like vividly remember the discussion of what Forrest Whitaker did to get into Idi Amin. I saw Forrest Whitaker one time. Really? Yeah, in Milano's deli on the Upper West Side. It was a really big deal. The deli was a flutter. We were like, that's Forrest fucking Whitaker. Wow. Dude, that Idi Amin thing. I remember people being like, don't talk to him. He could genocide you on the spot. Like they were like, keep the journalists away. He thinks murder is good. <laughs> He's so deep in this character. He does not know. And that's when I was like, actors are freaky, man. Yeah. I mean, I guess it works. You want to Oscar. And she talks about it here, though. She's like, we couldn't let journalists on the set because in order to play the character, he had really like convinced himself that this was kind of a good guy who had a lot of redeeming qualities. And meanwhile, he's referred to as the black Hitler. And they were like, we can't really let him speak to these journalists because they might be like, you know, he had some point. <laughs> anyway, when I got the role of Kay, Kay Amin, it was her first straight offer, meaning I didn't have to audition the film, which to my mind was insane. Know what I love that she says? What? She had no idea how to do an accent. She had worked really hard on her Southern accent for Ray, and then she had to learn a Ugandan accent. And so what she did is she hired the same dialect coach that Forrest Whitaker was working with. I felt that it was important to be consistent with Forrest's approach to the accent so that if we got anything wrong, at least we'd get it wrong together. And I love that. Do you know what? That I think still works for like cinematic. Yes. It's the improv idea. It's like if you're confident enough, the audience will be like, huh. They are using a banana as a phone. <laughs> I don't know about those. <laughs> Maybe that banana does call internationally. <laughs> I will laugh at this line. She was like, landing in Africa wasn't great. They had lost all my baggage and all I had were the clothes on my back, my carry-on, and as well as the PJs, the itchy socks, and the little airline toothbrush they handed out before we'd taken off. I'm like, okay, one time I did get to fly first class. And those socks are nice. <laughs> I think I keep them in a vault of like my most prized possessions. I'm like, this is the fanciest thing that's ever happened to me. Imagine if you, they had lost your bags and you had been in an economy. All you would have is like a terrible little buttered roll. <laughs> <laughs> Those rolls are so hard. <laughs> they hurt. But it was a great experience. By the time I was making The Last King of Scotland, I saw myself as a working character actor. I was not a household name. Okay. If I was at all famous, I was what some of us in the business call black famous. I had amassed enough work in the industry to gain the attention and respect of the film-loving members of my community. Once the movie came out and Forrest won an Academy Award, I joked that I was becoming the actor who, if cast to play your wife, would help you win an Oscar. I had worked with two of the best leading men in the business, the best number ones. Next, it would be my turn. For her intro into Scandal, she actually starts in 2016, several years into Scandal being on the air. And she starts November 9th, 2016, which we all remember as a really bad day. The first day we woke up and Donald Trump had been elected president of the United States. So she talks about how so many people on Twitter were like, Olivia, come fix this. Olivia Pope, help this. And it like pissed her off. She was like, a character from a reality TV show had become the president. And now people wanted a character from primetime drama to somehow fix it. That is not how democracy works. I felt sick to my stomach. 
I awoke and saw the inevitable news. Misogynistic, bankrupt white supremacist was to be the next president of the United States. Millions of Americans had not voted. Millions of people had chosen to give up their power and their voice. And now here we were caught on what many of us knew would be a terrifying road ahead. And so then she backs up to her work in politics. So in 2007, she had met Barack Obama and immediately was like, this is our next president and joined the campaign trail with him and started really helping. And this had actually really helped her come into herself. It really helped her with her body image issues. She was like, I was a part of something more important. I love spending time in communities all over the country, conveying to people how much they would matter to the Obama administration and how much they themselves matter to me. I loved having people feel seen and heard and embraced by political traditions of our democratic institutions. I loved reminding the people that their votes mattered, that they mattered. And in some ways, devoting myself to that process and that mission helped me feel like I mattered too. In 2009, when Obama was sworn in as president, I was offered a role within the administration. I was deeply honored. Eventually, I would join the president's committee on arts and humanities. So this is when she's in the process of being cast as both Olivia Pope in Scandal and her role in Django Unchained. And she actually ends up during the vetting process to join this committee, having to call them and be like, will these political roles affect my standing? Because I don't want the Obama administration to have to like vouch for me. And they're like, thanks for calling, but you're fine. (laughs) A lot was happening to her right now. She was also in a play called Race by David Mamet. Shoshana's dad. Yeah, Shoshana from Girls' dad wrote a play and they put it on because they're like, oh my God, the girl from Girls, her dad writes stuff. It was kind of like an interactive experience for the show Girls where it's like the world of these girls is coming to real life. So she was a star in it, which is actually where she met her later husband, Namdi. Yeah. She's like, that actually was the first time we were meeting, but it's not the first time our names had been listed next to each other. <laughs> I had never met him before, but he and I had co-hosted a fundraiser in Northern California for Kamala Harris's attorney general campaign. We had both been unable to attend the event, but we both had lent our names in support of what we thought would be a stellar political career. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not, I mean, what do you mean? Well, can I say that's the kind of thing that like people in love say, like there are so many things that are just completely insignificant. But if you fall in love with someone, you're like, oh my God, we both love blueberries one of the world's best fruits. We just happen to have that in common. One thing that I really love that he also really loved is when you like go somewhere and they have fresh baked chocolate chip cookies. It's so random that we like both have that passion. And we had both been to this place called Levain. And we both said like Levain's one of our favorite chocolate chip cookies in New York City. We both like worked these office jobs where like sometimes in Manhattan, you would like go get lunch at Sweetgreen and we would go to different Sweetgreens, but we both always went to Sweetgreen. And so if, just thinking about that, it's like we were destined. <laughs> I have one of those stories with Max. (laughs) (laughs) We were both at Le Poisson Rouge on the same night, like two years before we met. And I'm always like, whoa, what if we had hooked up that night? But we wouldn't have because I was there to hook up with someone else. (laughs) I feel like everyone in love will like make up a story to be like, do you see the destiny at work? (laughs) And it's cute. That's nice. Invisible string. You heard a song in the cab the number one song in the world. That was my song. I like that Kamala Harris is their invisible string. <laughs> anyway, so they met in the backstage of this theater. She was sent out to receive him because I think they were with the same agency. We don't really get a lot of their relationship, but she was smitten as shit. And I get it. Okay, so this is a testament to her obsession with the work. She doesn't care about being a celebrity She says pretty early on into Scandal, she was offered to do Oprah's Super Soul Sundays. And she's like, I just didn't really think it was like a good fit for me. She goes, I don't know if I have any wisdom. So I turned it down. And then later she ended up doing Oprah's The Next Chapter. She's like, this one felt 
more in line with something I could speak to. So I did it. But to be like, no, I think this opportunity to work with Oprah, I just don't think I have what it takes to make a good episode. Crazy. That's like a dedication to the craft. A, a long game because later her and her husband get lunch with Oprah and she's like, because our birthdays were similar. So we went over there and, and apparently they were just interviewed. She's like, when you sit down to lunch with Oprah, she's like, how are you doing? What's your marriage about? What does marriage mean to you? Who have you become now that you've retired? Has your sense of self shifted irrevocably? And you mentioned sitting down to lunch with Oprah and being like, um, my sense of self? Uh, well, <laughs> existentially, the person I am is... <laughs> I think when it comes down to my sense of self, things are good to me god okay i think (laughs) anyway crazy we have similar birthdays curating the perfect fall wardrobe is a challenge that does not have to plague you for your entire life match your wardrobe to your ever-evolving lifestyle with stitch fix whether you're picking up pieces for a new activity looking for maternity wear or simply bored of your closet your stylist at stitch fix makes sure you always have something to wear without all of the work of having to go through every store that's ever existed for yourself. Stitch Fix is the best way to shop new styles and brands. Think of them as your style partner. Your stylist will learn about your taste and collaborate with you on looks that you will love without breaking the bank. Simply share your style, sizes, and budget and a quick style quiz and Stitch Fix will send you five items in a fix right to your door. You can try everything on at home, keep what you like, and then send back the rest. Shipping and returns are always free. They have over a thousand brands and styles, so no matter what season of life you're in, Stitch Fix has you covered. If there is one hole in your closet, Stitch Fix will make sure they have it handled. Over time, Stitch Fix and their season style experts will match you with greater precision for pieces for you based on your likes and dislikes. It's so easy. In my Stitch Fix, I got a pair of pants that is exactly what my closet has been missing. I have been wearing them constantly. They are so soft and they look polished, but they're like a comfy pair of pants that isn't jeans. All I have is jeans and I'm so happy to be wearing not jeans every single day, only most days. Thanks to Stitch Fix, they just get me and they'll get you too. Try stitchfix.com slash worm and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash worm. stitchfix.com slash worm. So she gets Scandal, which every Black actress in Hollywood was vying for this role because being the lead in a network television primetime drama, it was the only Black female lead. She also says it was the first Black female lead on a primetime network show in like 37 years or something. I'm like, ooh, what was the last one? If anybody knows. I think we could Google it. I like it when there's audience participation. Okay. So everyone's vying for this role. She gets it. It's a huge deal. It's only picked up for six episodes because even though they are taking this quote-unquote risk of letting a Black woman lead a network television primetime drama, they give it six episodes, which is even partial seasons are usually like 10 to 12 episodes. So there is nine months in between filming season one and season two of Scandal, and that is the time that she shoots Django Unchained, another role she got that is just a huge deal. She talks a lot about Django Unchained and what an emotional experience it was because they shot at a real plantation and she says they just felt very connected to their ancestors. And one of the big checks on her box was she wanted to work with all the great directors and one of them is Tarantino. And they changed the script a lot. It was very important to her that this script like honored the characters, that it was not sensationalized, but that it did show the atrocities that were committed against Black people that were enslaved. And she worked with Tarantino a lot to like get rid of a lot of the gratuitous nudity. There was actually an assault scene that she 
was very concerned about. And she says when she got there on the day to shoot in her costume and everything, Jamie Foxx had been talking to Tarantino and Tarantino goes, we're just going to scrap it. We don't need this scene. And she's like, I don't know what Jamie said to him, but I'm grateful. And she said, I had prayed to hope that like it would come to us the way to do this scene in a way that honored the character and honored the people it was supposed to represent. And she's like, I feel like God did help us and bring us clarity. And what she believes was the best possible version of that scene, which was a scene not to happen at all. It was an important movie for her for many reasons, but one of them was ultimately that it was a love story. And she talks about growing up with her cousin who loved to draw and never drew black action figures. And he said, it's because there were none. And she says, like, at the end of the movie, really what it's about is a man who goes back. He blows up the plantation. He is the superhero of this story and he saves the damsel in distress. And although she's like, listen, I know it's not the most feminist thing in the world to be the woman who needs to be saved, but she says it's important to have that story be shown with black characters in it. And she was happy to be part of an image of a strong black man who can come and be in love and save the princess and have it be people that look like her can look up to. So working on Scandal was pretty much an idyllic experience, it seems. She says that the cast became like a family. She says they were the friends from Friends, but in real life. And also like the cast of Friends, who it seemed were friends. Except for? <laughs> Except for Matthew Perry, enemy of the pod. <laughs> it was also a very family-friendly environment. So once she has her first child, she's able to just bring it to work and it hangs out with all the other Shondaland kids. <laughs> it? I'm trying to keep the kid privacy. So she has a friend she grew up with who was a very early adopter of all technology and was very into Twitter and was like, Carrie, you got to get on Twitter. So when Scandal was given the season pickup, but given like a, we're not really picking it as six episodes, she was like, we got to get the whole cast on Twitter and we'll live tweet all the episodes. And it created this like fan connection that really created a sensation that the network could not ignore. She also says because they're only given six episodes, Shonda went in there and was like, all right, we're going to fucking twist, turn, plot at breakneck pace. And she says the DNA of that first season is in the rest of the series because the twists and the turns, it's like a freaking roller coaster. Yeah. I've never seen it, but I believe her. Oh, I really good. If there's one thing Carrie Washington's not going to do, it's going to lie. She's not going to lie. Did you watch? Did I watch? <laughs> we would watch it when it was on. She said because of social media, it made it like prime time, like appointment television, which is a dying breed. So my roommate, Marissa, who is honestly very successfully working her way up in the studio system right now. Shout out, Marissa. Shout out, Marissa. Give us a call. I actually texted her yesterday to be like, you got to read Carrie's book. You'll love it. Oh, I meant about our personal professional. No, (laughs) I don't mix business and pleasure. She was my roommate. (laughs) We can never have a TV show because I lived with a TV person. Boundaries. I respect them. <laughs> she like is a Shonda fan fangirl. And like we would sit down on, I believe it was Thursdays and watch Scandal. If I had like stuff to do on Thursdays, I would come home and be like, nobody talk to me until I can stream Scandal later. That's so cute. Listen, did I not love Carrie? I love Carrie. I respect Carrie. There are some things about Carrie that I question. Just like Olivia Pope, she is an admirable role model who is flawed as a human is. So she talks about her friendships and what the insane experience of, she calls it like a rocket ship to the top, the way that scandal just made them not an overnight success, but within a few weeks, her life changed in a way that her life had never changed before. And she is a successful woman, but things just got different. She was on the cover of Vanity Fair. She hosted SNL. And she talks about how it's hard to explain what it felt like to be on that rocket ship. But for those of us on the ride, we clung to one another, made sense of it together and built the kind of intimacy that genuinely redefined what friendship looks like for me and taught me how to be in a deep connection. And then she talks about like, you know, before she'd be on film sets and she'd be really close for three months and then you never see him again. And you don't ever show vulnerability. You get along, you have fun, you become BFFs. 
but like in a camp way, not in a here's my soul, you're my forever friend kind of way. And then she talks about how her friends pre-fame even, she lost a lot of them. And she says, part of it is that she's like, you know, I was just working 16 hours a day, five days a week, 10 months a year. It was very intense. I had no time for anything else. And then on top of that, she was doing film projects, TV projects, ads, commercials, advocates. Like she had a shit ton going on. And she's like, so if you weren't the kind of friend who could handle not hearing from me in a while, our friendship just got lost. And then she's like, but also, you know, it was really just easier for me to relate to these people who understood the fame. And I'm like, hmm. Huh. Okay. It's not the cutest thing I've ever heard about a person. It's not the cutest thing I've ever heard about a person. But to give her the benefit of the doubt, I wonder if there is something to the fact that because her home life had been so like caged and guarded in this way, she was never that vulnerable with these other people. There's this idea that pre-fame friendships would be more authentic. I think we talk all the time in CNBC about how like your childhood friends don't have to be the only best friends you ever make. You can make best friends in adulthood. So I think for us, it's different. But I think a lot of people are like, oh, all of my best friends are people from high school or college. Whereas I think for her, she didn't learn how to be vulnerable and intimate in a friendship until maybe her 30s. Yeah, like this experience. It's just, I hear what you're saying, that this was the first time she ever like let her guard down in a meaningful way that allowed like that deep connection. I think that is what she's trying to say. Yes. But I also am like, oof, to be like, you just don't get it. I'd never been able to connect to somebody until we had all hosted SNL together. A magazine cover shoot is like a really good time to get to know somebody's soul. I also think that to have a book that like kind of over explains every emotion and then to just like leave that dangling. I was like, oof, okay. (laughs) Anyway, in the middle of it, she got married in Sun Valley, Idaho, and she wanted to keep it private as hell. She got married at her friend's house. She told everybody it was just a family reunion. Her friend made her dress. The invitations were verbal. Oh, her friend Jason Wu made her dress. You may know him as a designer. But he also, in his studio, in his atelier, he wasn't saying he was designing a wedding dress. He was saying he was designing a dress for Kerry Washington for Scandal's Moroccan premiere to keep it on the DL. And there's this whole drama about whether or not she's going to let her dad walk her down the aisle. So she comes up with this compromise where he's allowed to like walk her to the chairs and then she walks herself the rest of the way. It is fraught. Her mom is like, please, that would devastate him and humiliate him. I will say, I do think a wedding is like 94% for parents. And so to be like, this is what's important to me. I'm like, oh, interesting. I mean, I know a lot of people are like, I want both parents. I don't want it to be this gender thing. Oh, yeah. But to be like, don't come near me. I'm reaching my future and I'm coming from a void is like tough stuff symbolically. That's how she felt, though. She also creates her own production company called Simpson Street in honor of where her mother grew up. And she's like, when I think about my origin story, I think about my mother's origin story. And all stories about her childhood start on Simpson Street. And she says when her mom and her aunts first saw that, they all gasped in excitement and understanding. And she talks about the projects that she developed with Simpson Street. Confirmation is about the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings. This was, for obvious reasons, like a very emotional, brutal experience. She wanted to do it. And at the same time, some other director wanted to do it. And she was like, I think it seems like the other two people were white. And she's like, listen, you need a black woman's voice, which I agree with. Like, that is who should be telling this story. But she's like, but I'll give you this. I've never produced anything. (laughs) So maybe we can go halvesies on this thing. But it's interesting the way that every role teaches her something about herself. The way she approached this role is so interesting. It's different than any other way she's approached a role. Up till now, she normally does like inside out. She gets to know a character's why, who, what do they want? where have they come from? And then that's what informs how they physically manifest their souls. But to study a real person, she says she worked with a new acting coach where she would memorize not just the lines from the actual testimony, but the way she breathed, the way she walked, the way she moved, the tenor, the inflections. 
And that kind of outside in character work is something she had never done before. And she felt very proud of her work because she says at the end of the first premiere, Anita Hill herself comes up and goes, I didn't know I had a walk, but seeing you walk as me, I went, oh my God, that's how I walk. So she said that was a whole new experience for her to like build it outside in. But then of course she did have to fill the character with like an emotional truth. And she says she was finally able to kind of come to terms with her own sexual abuse. And Anita Hill has a line where at the end she says, I know that it can happen because it happened to me. And she says, in that moment, I clearly was not Anita Hill. I had not been through what she had been through and our histories of trauma should not, cannot be compared. But like her, I had minimized my abuser's transgressions, kept them a secret to protect him, knowing also that the world might not believe me or would diminish the importance of what I'd experienced. On set that day, I used Anita Hill's words and her story to explain and defend my truth about what happened to me and why I had chosen to remain silent for so long. I revealed my emotional truth to embody and honor hers, offering up some part of myself in service to Anita Hill's truth allowed me catharsis and healing. And for that, I will forever be grateful. So then she moves through some more stories from Scandal. I think that if you're a big Scan fan, a gladiator, if you will, this is really fun to dig through. It's a good amount. I just say a lot of actors struggle with how many stories are too many stories. I, as someone who had never watched Scandal, did not at all feel like bored or bogged down by this section. The pacing of this book is really good. I think that the way she approaches telling these stories is really interesting because they're not just like little anecdotes that string together to amount just a series of anecdotes. They're all like about her craft and how she pursued it and what she took from each one and how it built the person she is today. Like it always reigns true to the narrative of like, how have I become the Carrie Washington writing to you? She has children at Scandal and that's like a huge experience for her that she had been so afraid of because she'd always heard these kind of infertility horror stories from her mother and she didn't know she'd be able to have children or not. So finally she has her two children and she has this line, which as a CNBC girl brought me so much freaking pride. She talks about how Shonda rhymes through her uh, baby shower and in attendance were Jane Fonda, Diane Carroll and Cicely Tyson. Two of three, we've read their memoirs. Once Isabel was born, Shonda, Viola Davis and I built a playroom at Sunset Gower Studios for our children to share. How many of those memoirs we've done Shonda, we've done Viola, we've done Jane Fonda, we've done Cicely Tyson, and now we've done Carrie Washington? And as someone who like talks about the entertainment industry all the time, Shonda's acceptance and excitement over her having a child is so exciting. If you decide that like making fucking television doesn't have to like get in the way of your existence as a parent, it doesn't have to. There are ways to have work-life balance in an industry as important as the entertainment industry. I feel like everyone acts like you can't possibly raise your family and also be on TV. And it's just not fucking true. I'm really proud of Shonda and Carrie and Viola and everyone for creating an environment where you can like parent people. Anyway, so throughout all of this self-discovery, there was just sort of a bottleneck, like a point that she couldn't get past. There is this level of disconnect that she'd never really been able to wrap her head around And finally, we back up to what we read in the prologue, this moment where she went and had a conversation with her parents. And the revelation is that her mother had used a sperm donor. I was not, am not my dad's biological daughter. And there was this level of question because after her mom had been artificially inseminated, they said like, well, you guys also should go home and doink because, you know, it could help. And then you also don't even know which sperm juiced in. And so... There was just always this kind of question. It wasn't a certainty. But she's like, as soon as they said it, I was like, this explains everything. I am not, as I had been told, the genetic sum of human beings who sat across from me. I am not who I had been told I was from the very beginning of my existence. But somehow the gift of finally knowing the truth outweighed the pain of what the truth was. In that moment, I was liberated by the revelation. They had never, I suddenly realized, been fully honest with me, not until that afternoon. 
They had entered into an illusory contract with each other to lie to everyone, including me and themselves, about the truth of our biological ties and the reality of my origins. And now here we are, 41 years later, the original lie between us exposed, the truth laid out bare. So upon revealing this information, her and her mom become much closer. Her mom is willing to answer any question, to really talk about this in any way that she needs. The dad, less so. Even though she tries her best to encourage him, he is very insecure about not being her biological father. She was more hurt by her mom because she's like, my mom kept this truth from me. But she says, my dad just kind of rejected the truth altogether. He really believed. He's like, I bet on myself. The odds are slim, but I think I won. She's like, it wasn't even a question to him. It's just something that he rejected. He was just like, yeah, there was someone else's semen involved, but who knows what that has to do with anything. Yeah. She really kind of goes back and forth. It seems at first she's kind of elated by the news because it feels like a piece of the puzzle finally clicked. But then she's stressed out because she's like, everyone has been lying to me for so long. Because it took them so long to tell her, she is now unable to find her biological father. She had hoped she could go back to the gynecologist who was at the cutting edge of infertility treatments. Like this was not common. This was super rare back in the day. And it was like this very fancy Upper East Side infertility clinic. And Carrie's like, I bet if he was still around, like how many other people like went in and were like, specifically, we want black sperm to conceive our baby. She's like, I bet he remembers us. I bet he could help us find the donor. But unfortunately, the doctor died. The receptionist died. The mother had requested to have all of the medical records destroyed. There is absolutely no record out there of who her biological father is. And she's like, I just feel like I deserve to know for purposes of my identity, purposes of my health. I think one of the immediate obvious consequences is she rushed to have children and she says she was plagued for all of her 20s by fears of not being able to have children because she knew that they had struggled for five years to conceive. She knew that her mother had had a stillbirth. But ultimately, now that she has this missing piece of the puzzle, it's almost like she could have been relaxed a bit by knowing it wasn't necessarily her mother who was incapable of having children. And that like her mother's first child, I think she was just given bad medical care. Like they have no idea what happened. It seemed like nobody was really advocating for her. There's a lot of questions that weren't determined for sure. Yeah. She's like, I would have been put at ease if I did not have this thing looming over me that it took my parents five years to get pregnant. Yeah. And she also is unable to find any information via all of the resources we have now. She does 23andMe. She does Ancestry.com. She keeps submitting her DNA to these places to see if she could find any like familial connections from her father's side. And she has not been able to find anything. She says, my whole life, I'd felt as if there was a puzzle of a painting hanging in our living room with one piece from another puzzle jammed into place as if it belonged. Every day, we all walked by it, admiring the painting and ignoring that piece. When my parents told me the truth about how I'd been conceived, it was as though our family had finally said, this is not actually a painting, it's a puzzle. And if you look closely, that isn't even the right piece. Acknowledging the truth of us was a relief, but we were still left with an incomplete puzzle. It was more honest, but it was now carried a void. There's more puzzle metaphors. Like That's kind of what I mean, where I'm like, yeah, okay, got A lot it. of puzzle stuff, a lot of puzzle stuff. She has these realizations that take her, it seems, several years, but I think she really comes to terms with the fact that even though her dad isn't her biological father, like... Of course, she knows and she encourages this to him. But I think it takes her mentally longer to like fully agree that this is the family that her like soul chose. Mm -hmm. She read this parenting book that she uses when thinking about her children, which is that it is not the parent's job to mold the child. The child chooses the parents and it's the parent's job to like allow that child to become who they are and allow the parent to grow to be better and stronger in like response to who the child is. That the child shows the parents. And she's like, I think my children shows me. She believes her projects shows her when she looks at the list of projects she's had. So many of them deal with child-parent conflict or feeling like unable to have a child, like the strain or want or desire of motherhood. 
And she's like, all of these things were helping me by learning those characters to learn myself. I like that idea. And she's like, and I realized my child chose me and I chose my father. And in that way, like we are a perfect family. And as she's discovering these things about herself, she's doing Little Fires Everywhere, which is a series about a woman in like a non-traditional pursuit for a child. It's a surrogate who then like keeps the baby. Yeah. Which she's like, okay, some of these lines, some of these scenes like really reflect an experience that I imagine could have taken place. And she really applies it and she really advocates for certain takes when the producers are like, this take is better. And she's like, no. From my personal experience, the one that shines through here is better. And she's very proud of herself for learning to advocate for those things that she finds very important. Even though it was painful at first to feel that her mother had kept something from her, she says, knowing this secret, being the only person in the world, because her mom had never told anybody, brought them so close. She talks about holding her newborn for the first time. I held her tiny body in my hands and looked down into her beautiful brown eyes and I began to silently weep. There was no veil between my daughter and me, no secrets, no distance. I didn't yet know the reason for my mother's withholding, but this feeling, the seemingly endless loop of uninhibited love being poured back and forth into my child's eyes into mine was new to me. I never quite experienced it with my own mother. After that revelation, that all changed. My mother's eyes opened to me and mine to her. We held each other in the sunlight and sat poised on large rocks. They were finally connected. And she says they became like not just mother and daughter, but best friends. Yeah. So in 2021, her mother is experiencing health issues. And it is again revealed that there have been other secrets kept. So she knows that in 2004 and in 2020, her mother was diagnosed with cancer. But it turns out there was actually a third occurrence. And this now in 2021 is the fourth occurrence of cancer. And it is everywhere. They do an exploratory surgery and It is a lot. And her mom says, but I'm here to fight. Like, I'm ready to fight. And she becomes her mom's advocate. She becomes her mom's primary caretaker. While still doing a handful of other projects, she's able to be by her mom's side. And her mom wants her to keep taking these projects because she says, if you turn down a project, it means you don't think I'm going to win. But yeah, she says like a year after all of the struggles, they have a 50th anniversary party where she hires a magician. There was no denying that the magic was real. And she tells the story about seeing a family of whales and knowing that her family was like the family of whales, just swimming together. Because she saw a mama whale and a little baby whale. And the baby whale was showing off a little trickster, a little performer, if you will. And there was a male whale. And the guy goes, that's actually not the father of that baby. He wants to mate with the woman next season. So he's coming with them down the current to prove that he's a good dad. It was another hint, another cue. The three of them were a family forged to survive the crossing. He had chosen them and they had chosen each other. He may not have been the biological father, but in their journey together, he was the dad. And the epilogue is a reflection on her full name, Carrie Marissa Washington Amoe, and how every part is very important to her and a discovery of who she is. Carrie is what my mother chose. Washington is my dad. Asomwa is my future. Marissa belongs to me. Marissa is her middle name and she made it her first name. Yeah. So now her name is Carrie Marissa. I think that this book did a really incredible job of giving us thoughtfulness, spirituality, pop culture tidbits and name drops. Overall, I think that there were parts that like could have moved faster or a little bit differently, but I don't think it left me wanting for anything. I really think it clarified for me like what I love in a memoir, which is all things have to draw back to the person. Yeah. Like if a story doesn't show personal growth or explain who you are, I feel it's a wasted story. 
And I think great writers can find the moments that are funny or seemingly trivial that speak to the larger story. And I think this book was good about every character she chooses to explain as a part of who she is. It, like in learning them, she learns herself. It's all about the dedication to the craft. Even though we said some of the metaphors are redundant, the actual content is incredibly lean. She's like, here are my parents. Here's how they raised me. Here's how it fucked me up. Here's how I've overcome it. Here's how it's made me a better actor. And here's how I've become successful. And I thought this was actually a really great book with like a specific story. She wasn't just like, well, I'm famous. So you'd probably want to hear about it. It was like something happened to me that shaped me. I guess it was like the Molly Shannon reveal. And one thing I really respect about her is that I do not believe she would have written a book if she was just like, well, I'm famous and here's a book. Yeah, no, she's so private. This book is the result of my attempts to make sense of myself and my family and to accept the truth about who we are. I've written this account to more fully understand this truth, to affirm it and to embrace it. This truth has given birth to a deeper compassion and love for my parents and for myself. And I share it with you because I do not want to hide. I don't think that she shares anything without purpose. And I really admire that about her, the way she like embodies separating her personhood from her career. I think most famous people don't have an ability to do that. Something interesting, too, that's briefly touched on in this book is children of surrogacy, children of egg and sperm donation. Since that's such recent technology, they're all coming into their own as adults right now or like they're all becoming adults. And it is a whole new conversation that she said was brought to the UN recently about like sperm donor rights and like egg donation children rights and surrogate rights and stuff, IVF baby rights and like the interesting idea of what's fair and what they get to know. And I think like in that way, she felt her story was important to people who are struggling similarly. Yeah. And I think it is very important. How fertile would you consider this soil? 4.5 out of 5. I would give it a 4.8 out of 5. Wow. How many warm teenies would you like to enjoy with Carrie Washington? Can I say one? Yeah. Just because I do think I'd like to know her. I don't want to get sloppy. Like I don't, I don't want to party with her. I want to like, and I'm not saying she's not fun at a party. I just, from this book, I did not get the sense of her that I need in order to feel comfortable to be a bit drunk. I would love to like sit down for a meeting and like at that meeting, have it be casual in the sense that like, oh, we'll all order a drink. She's not somebody that I'm like, let's get wasted at the bar and tell secrets because she does not tell secrets. Yeah, I didn't get a sense that she is my friend. I got a sense that she's someone I very much respect. She is a full human, warts and all. Yeah. With a beautiful story to tell. Who's just incredibly talented. Yeah. All right, you guys, we love you so much. We can't wait to see you in San Francisco, Denver, Nashville, Atlanta, New York City, New York City, the land of Santa Claus, his home. And who do we love more than even Santa? We love the five-star reviewing Wormos. Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you, LA Book Freak. I am a freak for your reviews. Thank you, Rachel's W. Rob. Well, your review has robbed me of any sadness I felt because it was beautiful. Thank you, Snuggly Poop. That's what I call bugs sometimes. And that's how I know that you're a real one. Thank you, underscore Q-R-S-T-U-V. You are my favorite section of the alphabet. Thank you, K and S-8. I appreciate you times eight. And thank you, app, app, app user. I am so grateful that you are using this app. Oh, and thank you, Queensberry. You are the sweetest little berry in the bush. Thanks, guys. Love you.